Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. We're back in the Flaniverse, baby. We are, and this movie is amazing. It's such a fun time. I told Elise just prior to recording that I'm pretty sure this just shot into my top five, if not top three. I always really, really liked this movie, but on a revisit, it's so much better than I remember it being. And I think it's slept on. Yeah, I'm thinking about this movie right now thinking like, what doesn't this movie have? It has a nonlinear timeline. It has Kate Siegel. (laughs) (laughs) It has a compelling storyline and a quick moving plot. Lots of things that pull at your heartstrings. Mm, Trauma, tasteful trauma. (laughs) Complicated family dynamics. Uh Uh-huh, but love is at the core of it. You know what I mean? I mean, seriously, it is, to me, something I was anticipating being very frightening. And it was, but it was so many other things at the same time. I overall had a really enjoyable experience with it. All right, jumping right into the ladies, we have Kaylee. Now, this is one of those movies where we have two different timelines, one as an adult and one as a kid. So we have two people playing Kaylee. Adult Kaylee is played by Karen Gillan. She's a Scottish actress known for Doctor Who, the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, the Avengers franchise, the Big Short, Duel, and a bunch of other things. And then young Kaylee is played by Annalise Basso. She's an American actress known for Ouija Origin of Evil, which is another Flanagan film, Shadow Piercer, Slender Man, Captain Fantastic, which I love that movie. It's not a horror movie. I think it's just very sweet. Okay. It's about a family that lives off-grid in the woods. It's nice. very, It's very cute. <laughs> The upcoming The Life of Chuck, which is another Flanagan film. And I thought this was so funny. Annalise was also a regular contestant on Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Appearing in 45 episodes. 45? She's a genius. She is. Then we have Marie, who is played by Katie Sackoff. She's an American actress known for shows Battlestar Galactica, 24, The Mandalorian, and then movies, Halloween Resurrection, and our favorite sequel title ever, (laughs) The Haunting in Connecticut 2, The Ghosts of Georgia. (laughs) We got to cover that. We do have to cover that. We have to. Actually pretty (laughs) spooky from what I remember. I'm scared, but excited. But I just love that that's what it was named. (laughs) Then we have Marisol, who is played by Mommy. Sorry. I mean, Kate Siegel. (laughs) We know her, obviously, from Hush, Haunting of the Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, Fall of the House of Usher, Gerald's Game, Ouija Origin of Evil, and the upcoming The Life of Chuck. This movie is directed, co-written, and edited by Mike Flanagan, one of my favorite people ever. He's known for Hush, Before I Wake, Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Midnight Club, Gerald's Game, Ouija Origin of Evil, Doctor Sleep, Upcoming Life of Chuck, so many awesome things. The film had its world premiere at the 2013 Toronto International Film Festival and received a wide theatrical release in April of 2014, but Oculus is actually based on Flanagan's 2005 short film, his first time doing anything horror-related, Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan. The short only contained one setting, a single actor, and the mirror. The short became highly acclaimed and interest quickly arose regarding an adaptation of the short into a feature. Now, it was named Chapter 3 because Flanagan reportedly wrote nine short stories about the Lasser Glass, which we'll learn a lot more about, originally intending to make it an anthology, but Chapter 3 was the most self-contained and lended itself the most easy to be filmed. They shot it with a budget of about $1,500 and very limited resources. This movie... No, no, no. The oh, short. no, the short. I was the short. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. No, the short. So to shoot the short, they had to rent the back of a coffee shop in Venice Beach. And it was funny because they had to stop shooting whenever they'd have to make a cappuccino. <laughs> 
However, the short made rounds at film festivals and many directors tried to buy it off of him, but he refused. After shooting his first horror feature, he had a meeting with a studio that allowed him to run with his idea for Oculus and shoot it his way, which included not going the found footage route like so many wanted him to do. Which kind of explains why there's a large jump in years between obviously the 2005 short, Mm. which was his first horror idea ever, and then 2013 when it eventually came out. But this was a theatrical release. It had a little bit more of a budget. Obviously, they got Kate Siegel. So like, I didn't know she was in this movie. And when I saw her, because she's a scary lady, I ironically felt so much better. (laughs) Because I was like, oh, I know you. This is excellent news. And I was no longer scared. (laughs) She makes me feel so safe. But not in this movie. You're right. So let's get into it. Okay, let's do it. The movie begins in the past. So we are going to be jumping from past to present. We begin in the past. There are two young children trying to open the front door in the nighttime. Obviously, there's something spooky going on. We see some peering through the door. And these children are young Kaylee and young Tim. They are brother and sister. They are obviously trying to escape from the house. Something has gone horribly wrong inside. We can't see what it is quite yet. Suddenly, they hear footsteps and turn around to see somebody carrying a gun while approaching the door. Kaylee steps between the menacing figure and her brother, staring up defiantly at the gun. And this is when I was like, okay, this actress, from this moment on, she is putting her whole heart and soul into this character. So good. She's an amazing actress. The camera rotates, so we see a young man holding the gun, looking horrified. And as the gun fires, the young man we just saw wakes up into reality in the present, realizing the whole thing was just a nightmare. Yeah, he then begins talking to a doctor as he's telling the story of the dream. We now know this to be an adult Tim, but the doctor says that this dream implies a level of responsibility, showing that Tim isn't a danger to himself or anyone else. And then we later see this doctor advocating to a group of professionals that Tim should be discharged on his 21st birthday. So Tim is either incarcerated or in a type of facility But then we're switching settings and we see a young woman walking into a very classy auction where she meets her fiancé, Michael. Just as she enters the room, they are uncovering a mirror for auction, the Lasser Glass. It sports a very small crack in its lower right corner. It has very ornate crowning all around it. It has black wood. It's very spooky looking, but also very regal looking. They start the bidding at a very conservative $10,000. Goddamn. I was like, okay. (laughs) It sells on Skype to a buyer overseas for about $16,000, which makes Kaylee kiss Michael goodbye and leave because she has to go pick up her brother, Tim. Yes. And that's when we realized that young Tim is that 21-year-old that we just saw, right? So now we are understanding that the kids we saw in the beginning are now matched with their adult actors in the present. So back to Tim, the doctor is warning him that for him and his sister to reconnect might bring challenges. He reminds Tim to stay vigilant to the therapy and the work that he has done while in this mental facility and to just be wary of his sister so that he doesn't relapse, I guess, in his recovery or lose a sense of his confidence or stability. Yeah, he notes that Kaylee, his sister, had to get by on her own while Tim had a support system. 
So Tim has to protect his recovery because Kaylee still might have negative or not truthful ideas about what actually happened. So we're getting the sense that there was an event here and probably had to do something with that gun in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So Tim is discharged from St. Aidan's mental facility where Kaylee is outside waiting to pick him up. They greet each other very warmly. And as they are at lunch shortly after, she slides him a check saying that this is his half of the estate. So, okay, this is very smartly telling us that they don't have parents and invites him to stay with us until he can get an apartment and get back on his feet. Kaylee notes like, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about all of this sooner, but all of a sudden they wouldn't let me in to see you. But Tim alludes that that was kind of his choice because he had certain things that he just wanted to work out on his own. And while Kaylee seems to be a bit hurt by this, she says she understands, but then very hurriedly whispers, I found it. And then after she says that, Tim asks her what she's talking about, but she replies that she's going to kill it. So she has found it and she's going to kill it. And I love the suspense that this conversation is sowing. She does also reveal that it was hard to track it down, but it's in her warehouse before it ships to a new buyer. So, okay, we're connecting that this purchase earlier has something to do with what she's talking about. We're guessing that it has something to do with the mirror. Then we get a flashback to 11 years earlier. Through contacts, we find out that Tim is 10 and Kaylee's about 12. A golden retriever is barking outside as a young Tim and Kaylee play with, it looks like laser guns, like yeah, laser tags. Yeah, pretty tag. sick setup. I know, mm-hmm. like they have the vests and everything. Yeah. Like, just outside. How does this work? <laughs> okay, Rich. And they are. The house is huge. <laughs> um, as their parents are moving in. Dad is all business. He's answering many, many phones as the movers place this mirror into his office. The mom seems playfully pissy about this antique purchase, and then he makes some quips about, what did you expect, Ikea? But they seem to have a warm relationship. This is showing that as they move in, everyone seems to be having like a very positive bond with one another. Back in the present, adult Kaylee ends up dropping Tim off at a hotel room. So we're getting the sense that Tim has declined staying with his sister and her fiancé and has opted to stay in his own hotel room. Kaylee confronts him and says that he promised not to forget what happened. He is insisting that he doesn't know what Kaylee is talking about, but Kaylee responds that she is, quote, doing it the following night and would like his help, and then she leaves. We're back to 11 years ago, where the mother, Marie, is staring at herself in a bathroom mirror looking at a scar on her lower stomach, supposedly a cesarean scar. And you could tell just by the way that she's rubbing her fingers on it that she is a little insecure about the way that it looks. But the father, Alan, turns the insecurity into foreplay very fast. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent work, Alan. (laughs) Excellent work. And starts making her feel confident again. So, okay, we're getting the sense that Alan is very supportive of his wife. They seem to have a great relationship. Later that night, Alan goes downstairs, has a juice box from the fridge. and sees a ghostly woman in a jump scare outside of his office. This woman is Kate Siegel. (laughs) Caught her right away. I missed her. I don't think I was looking, honestly, to be completely honest. I think I knew something bad was going to happen. But you can tell it's a ghostly woman, again, just by the white glow opaqueness, but also very glowing white eyes. So obviously nothing alive. (laughs) He goes into his office checks himself out in the mirror where you could tell he got scared and squeezed the juice box and now he has a mess <laughs> all over his shirt, which I thought was like a nice touch. <laughs> but brushes off and goes back to bed. But as he shuts the lights off in his office, you can still see the silhouette of the woman in the mirror. 
Ugh, back to the present. Kaylee is asleep in her bed when she's awakened by the sound of a dog barking, which the way this sounded through my TV sounded like an actual dog barking outside of my house. Anyway, that was a weird moment where I lost touch with the reality for a second, but it's in the movie. So if you watch this movie, just know that the dog is in the movie, not outside of your own house. <laughs> and she goes downstairs and finds the lasser glass hanging in the same room from the past. It looks like she's back in who we can assume to be her father's old office, staring at the lasser glass. And as she steps to examine the mirror, her father approaches her from behind and attacks her. He strangles her as he smiles very sinisterly. And as Kaylee begins screaming, she wakes up in bed back in her home next to her fiance. He begins comforting her saying, you know, you're having one of your night terrors. It's okay. So already we're seeing this breakdown, which I think is so brilliantly done. Like this breakdown between dreaming and reality, which will then kind of continue throughout the film. And it's also disorienting because the father is the same age as he was when Kaylee was a young girl, but this is the father interacting with an adult Kaylee. So there's a lot of playing with time here. So the next day, she's at work when Michael approaches saying that he put in a request for her to have her own printer as someone came across very graphic crime scene photos that she printed from her computer. And we see that there is a photo of a bloody woman laying on the ground. She very sheepishly takes it and hides it away. And Michael's like, you want to talk about this? You want to explain it? <laughs> and Kaylee's like, I'm dealing with a lot of dark parental stuff with Tim being released. Just please bear with me for another couple days. And Michael seems to accept that too easily, for my opinion. He's just like, okay, honey, you can keep printing out dead people. Like, what? But you know what? He's not trying to change her. Right. He's like, I know that you're into macabre shit. So why don't I just why don't I just request for your own printer, honey? <laughs> so we love a supportive hubby. Yes. So the next day, Kaylee is putting in an order to get the mirror repaired so that it delays the transfer to the new buyer. Kaylee tells the warehouse worker, oh, I'm just going to transfer the mirror to the repairman myself under the guise that she is actually going to do that, but she's actually going to take the mirror for her own purposes. And as the transporter walks out of the room, she unveils the mirror from underneath a blanket and says, hello again, you must be hungry. I'm like, girl, what? <laughs> yeah, I was like, why was that so sensual, though? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then she like runs her fingers along the crack in the mirror and says, I hope this still hurts. Okay, we're getting a little loco crazy. This is also when I started to realize that, look, and I love adult Kaylee's character. Yeah. And I think we might have mentioned her on this podcast before, Delaney from TikTok. Something that helped me get through this movie was imagining Delaney imitating Kaylee's adult character. She is so quippy and she's a little bit like dramatic, but also stern. She's sternly dramatic, which is so, if you've ever seen Delaney on TikTok, that is like her whole shtick, like the manic pixie dream girl, these quippy lines. That's when I realized what this movie was really going to be for me. And so I was into it. I will say too, if the movie wasn't as good as it was, Kaylee's character would be camp. Right? Like, yes. She is so exaggerated. Mm -hmm. And until you're on her side, you're like, there's no way that you're a real person. But then once you start seeing that the things that she's saying are making sense, and granted, that's like a lot of horror movies, right? Like there's always a girl who believes in something supernatural and a guy who's like, no, you're overblowing things, like whatever. But especially with how menacing she is and how like hellbent on revenge yeah. that she is, this is so close to being ridiculous. But if the rest of the movie didn't play out the way that it was, 
Mm -hmm. And I actually had read something with Mike Flanagan. I didn't include it in the pre-plot trivia, but he had said it was important to him that he had somebody who knew the mirror's shit from the beginning and believed the mirror shit from the beginning because otherwise watching people discover that a mirror is evil when the audience does for 90 minutes is boring. Mm, That's a really good point. So having this conflict between Kaylee and Tim where one definitely believes in the mirror shit and one doesn't believe in the mirror shit gives the audience a chance to make a choice on who they believe Mm. until shit starts happening. Now that you're talking about that, I do appreciate Kaylee's characterization because it really lends to that sense of like scripted dramaticism because it's already been established that Tim has been in this facility with a support system for years and years and years and Kaylee has been on the outside on her own. And so the fact that a lot of her dialogue feels scripted, like that she has ruminated on what this conversation is going to be like with Mm. the mirror, like it makes sense because she is characterized as somebody who has been thinking and planning on this moment for years and years and years. There is definitely an alignment there with what we see from Kaylee and then, of course, what the movie ends up being, which is why this works. Meanwhile, Tim has been fed a narrative to rationalize everything. Mm -hmm. And there's even like conversation about like, oh, my God, you're brainwashed. Like, what did they tell you? What did they make you forget? And granted, it sounds sound, but at the same time, like his was written out for him where Kaylee's was written by herself. So like, whose is more authentic, even if one is sounding a little bit more grounded than the other. So again, I think there's so much to play with here. But I think this is one of the best sequences of the movie, too. Oh, man. They really make you sit through this one. It is slow, but <laughs> it is effective. So she is staring in the mirror, and then she sees three figures cloaked. It looks like a sheet ghost, right? Like there's three figures with white sheets over them, and they kind of look like, you know, a traditional looking ghost. So she turns around. There's three of them kind of standing in like a group. She unveils them painfully slow. One is a bust. And then (laughs) the second one is another bust. (laughs) And then as she's going to reveal the third one, there's a repairman jump scare. And that takes you out of it completely. But when she turns around after he leaves, the third one is gone in the present. But when she looks in the mirror, the third figure is still cloaked sitting there. Ooh, it's so good. It is so good. So effective. And they load the mirror into her truck. Tim calls her wanting to meet up and talk about the night before. She's like, okay, yeah, come by the house. And he's like, okay, yeah, what's your address? And she's like, no, I mean the house. And as they pull away, you see that there's a dead plant sitting in the corner. And then it's an amazing transition that takes us back into the past again. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the past, we are now seeing Marie, the mother, going to water her plants only to find out that they're all dead. She's obviously disappointed. Okay, she cares very much for her plants and they're dead. But then it cuts to a young Kaylee running through the yard outside playing laser tag with her brother. Again, this amazing laser tag setup that they have. And as she runs into some shrubs in front of her dad's office, she turns around and peers through the window and sees a woman rubbing Alan's, her father's chest from behind. But I love the way this is shot because you can see enough to see that there's a woman there but you can't see her full figure. You can't even really fully tell if she's more of a human or like some kind of translucent entity. Like it's enough there to know what she thinks she's seeing, but it's not enough to really gauge what it is. Anyway, she blinks and the woman disappears. So she's like, okay, whatever. And then she gets laser shot by her brother and she's like, fuck you, which I love. (laughs) 
So later over dinner, Kaylee is begging for a phone and sassing the fuck out of her mother. Being <laughs> like, everyone else has one. Being a 12-year-old, fine. Meanwhile, we can tell that Alan is nervous, the dad. He is bouncing his leg. He's biting his nails until he goes a little bit too far and draws blood. So as he goes to clean it off, Kaylee asks who the lady in his office was today. Obviously, this is tense, but he doesn't say there was no woman. He says he doesn't know. You could tell the mom's trying to play along, being like, yeah, who was the lady in your office today? And she's got her glass of wine, and she's just trying to be flirty. (laughs) And he really sternly says, I don't know, and bandages his finger and walks away. And you could tell this goes right to the insecurity for Marie. We all feel her pain. Mm -hmm. It's very uncomfortable. And are we supposed to assume, I'm thinking back to the cesarean Mm -hmm. scar scene. Are we assuming maybe she, like as this mirror is impacting them, like her insecurity that's really coming through is fleeting youth or like motherhood? Like I'm kind of wondering like if those things are meant to be playing into each other. That's why I think the cesarean scar seems like it's not a big thing, but if they hadn't planted a seed of existing insecurity, it mm. would have been able to blossom as believably as everything else. So I would think so, especially, I mean, obviously we don't really see Marie see the figure, but Kate Siegel is younger. Like Mm -hmm. she is like a younger woman in this movie. She definitely seems more youthful. It's a little bit of like a juxtaposition there where she's like, oh, is he actually straying? Mm -hmm. Like, do I have something to worry about? Back in the present, Tim and Kaylee have arrived at the house. It looks a little bit different now. The iconic 2002 green is covered up everywhere. All the walls are white. And Kaylee also has a small dog. Named Dog. Named Dog. And she tells Tim to look around. So we have a moment watching Tim go from room to room, reminiscing. There are some crazy banisters in this house. I clocked those and immediately was fearful of somebody (laughs) taking a tumble over those banisters. (laughs) But later we get some more context that as Tim was institutionalized throughout the years, Kaylee ended up inheriting the house after it sat on the market for years and years until she was 18, and then it became hers. It seems like Tim doesn't want to stay, but she does ask him for help with something before he leaves. He ends up helping her carry the mirror, still covered, into the house, into the office, in fact, where we see it present in the past scenes. We also see that there's a whole setup in the office. There are like two Mac computer monitors. There are several cameras on tripods and also mounted into the corners of the room. There are several alarm clocks on a table. And Kaylee even points out a kill switch. There is some kind of like wedge device. It's an anchor. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. A wedge device. It's an anchor. (laughs) So there's an anchor on a swing from the ceiling that if a timer goes off or if it's manually discharged, will slam into the mirror or where the mirror will be and break it. She shows Tim the setup. She's determined to tape and track the effects of this mirror to scientifically prove that it has some sort of evil or supernatural entity inside. And she's planning on getting started with that research. And she tells Tim he can leave if he'd like, but he says that he will stay for a little while and maybe get some more intel on what this is going to be. So Kaylee turns on the cameras and begins narrating. I'm, I said she's giving Heather and Blair Witch Project. Yes! Like, it's, it's very student film. She's <laughs> narrating that her name is Kaylee Russell. She's 23 years old, and she's here with her brother, Tim Russell, 21 years old, at 4.15 p.m. on October 13th, states their address. 
She outlines her procedures. There's three independent cameras on independent circuits for reliability, two different lines for phones, along with both of their cell phones. There is a 45-minute timer that reminds her to change the batteries in the cameras, along with an hourly timer that reminds them to eat. Each room is fitted with its own thermostat, and any change in temperature over 5 degrees will trigger an alarm. And the purpose of the experiment is to prove that the Lasser glass is home to an observable, predictable, supernatural force responsible for at least 45 deaths. So she goes on to tell a little bit about the history of the glass, saying that it starts in London in 1754 with a Philip Lasser. And then she's interrupted by a phone call, which is a check-in from her Michael fiance. <laughs> from her Michael My, fiance. From her Michael fiance. <laughs> um, she's interrupted by a check-in call by her fiance, Michael, who she then kindly asks him to call actually on the hour next time. <laughs> she tells the camera that she has asked her fiance to call her on the hour under the guise that she's nervous to spend time alone with her recently unincarcerated brother, <laughs> which Tim takes very much offense to. <laughs> But then she goes on to detail the trail of the Lasser glass, outlining very many mysterious deaths of every owner. She goes on to start detailing a story about a dog, and then she sees the shape of the family dog from the past run in the doorway behind Tim. She freezes, but is pulled out of her vision by the alarm to eat. So as her and Tim are eating, she reveals to him that she's making the tapes to prove her father's innocence and Tim's innocence. But Tim argues that they were kids who just made up a scary story to not face the fact that their dad was a murderer. She slaps him and says, you can call me crazy all you like, but you're not allowed to talk about him that way. She continues on with the history lesson, talking most recently about a woman named Marisol Chavez, who died from a hemorrhage related to a miscarriage and perished in the same room as the mirror in 1975. She also pulled out all of her teeth with pliers and put them in a plastic bag. How organized. How organized of her. Tim then is interrupting her and arguing about causation versus correlation. He's like, hey, we bought a couch in 2001 and then I got an F on a test. Does that mean the couch is bad? Like, again, trying to ground her in these situations. But Kaylee is undeterred, pressing on to finally get to her family's case, which is directly following Marisol's case. Her mother, Marie, suffered a psychological breakdown and was tortured and murdered. And Tim interjects, by who? Again, trying to prove that it was their father. And Tim presses on her husband, who was shot to death by her son right in front of her daughter. We're getting all of the setting here. Mm -hmm. Kaylee is still hell-bent on proving the innocence of the mirror's victims, where Tim then suggests, well, why don't you just smash it? Kaylee tells him, you know what? Why don't you do it right now? Just then we see a quick flashback of Kaylee and Tim swinging golf clubs around at the mirror. Tim then in the present takes a stool and walks over to the mirror to smash it, but then continues talking to Kaylee about she's being delusional. She's not looking at this the right way. Maybe she should put more energy into coping with what happened instead of trying to rewrite stories. But as he's talking to her, Kaylee points out that Tim has put the stool down. And she asks him, do you remember putting that stool down? And he doesn't answer at first. But Kaylee then uses this to say that the mirror has defenses against people smashing it. It might make them think they're doing something that they're not really doing. It might persuade somebody to drop a weapon that they were originally going to use against it. In this case, a stool. And she says that in recorded history, only one person ever tried to attack the mirror. Some guy tried to hit it with a fire poker, but stopped just before breaking the mirror. And after staring stone still at the mirror for some time, he left his house and walked into traffic where he was hit by a car and died. 
So she, again, is saying this mirror has defenses and it's not just so simple to break it like we might think. But Tim isn't really hearing any of this. He argues that the mirror isn't his to break, just like her delusion isn't his to break. And I'm like, ooh. uh." Yeah, he's like, no one can break your delusion for you. You have to do it yourself. But Kaylee informs him there is a kill switch. There is a timer that is attached to the anchor hanging on the ceiling. And if they don't reset the timer manually, a pendulum will fall and impale the mirror. She shows him that it's set up to work. The mirror is not in the place that it will be for the rest of the experiment, but the pendulum falls and pierces the wall. So it will certainly shatter the mirror. But by putting the mirror in this situation, it will force the mirror to act in defense of itself, which will then hopefully prove their point. Back in the past, we see Alan typing away at his computer alone in his office. He removes the bandage from his injured finger, then quickly realizes he never removed the bandage. Uh from his chase. This is a content warning. This is very squeamish, I think. (laughs) He tries to remove the bandage once again from his finger after thinking he succeeded the first time, but it's stuck. So he grabs a staple remover, one of those little like jaw traps, reminds me of an alligator head, Yeah. to try to grab the bandage and rip it off. But as he's doing that, he realizes that he does not, in fact, have a bandage on his finger anymore and that he is digging the staple remover into his own finger. He ripped his fingernail off. Yeah. He does not cry out in pain at all. He seems to be very, like, sleepily moving through this process. It doesn't seem like he's feeling any sort of pain or anything at all, really. He suddenly approaches the mirror and then calls for Kaylee and Tim to join him in his office, where he then accuses them of moving things around in his office. We can see that there are several books opened and laid out page side down all over the floor. They insist that they were not in his office. They did nothing to cause these books to be laid out in this way. But he tells them once again, they are not allowed in the office. In the present, Tim and Kaylee are still arguing. Tim is parading around being like, oh, you say they're dead plants. All these plants are alive. What are you going to do? Kaylee's like, well, I have another way to tell. And then finds the dog and places the dog in the cage in front of the mirror. And as Tim continues arguing with her, being like, what are you doing? What are you trying to prove? He sees the vision of their old dog laying Mm. next to him. So he's starting to see shit now. So cut to the past. There seems to be two situations going on. The kids are trying to play fetch with the dog, who seems to be very lethargic, very tired. He won't go play with a ball, play with a stick. Meanwhile, the parents are inside arguing about why the father has a gun. He's like, you want me to get this for protection? She's like, yeah, we're in the suburbs now. Like, why do you need a gun? This seems to be too dangerous. So he promises that he'll lock it up separate from its bullets. He's like, very much in handy when something actually goes wrong. Like, there's starting to be some arguments here. There's starting to be some tension. And as Marie turns around to leave the room, she hears what appears to be his voice whisper under his breath, grotesque cow. So she turns around and says, what did you say to me? (laughs) But he says he didn't say anything. Which she seems to accept. It seems like she just feels very wounded by this. Like her insecurities are really starting to come through. And she's looking at herself in the mirror. And it is like a ghastlier version of herself looking back at her. So she is certainly like not feeling like herself. That night, the dog wakes everybody up barking at the door of the office. While the mom tries to go downstairs and remove the dog from the area because Alan is working inside, the dog bites her. She calls to Alan, who finally opens the door. He's trying to be like, I'm working. But right before he opens the door for her, she hears voices from within the office, like multiple voices, as if there's a conversation going on. 
but there's no one there when he finally lets her in. They begin arguing about how he's been so lost in his own little world in there, and they get into a screaming match, waking the kids up upstairs. The next morning, the dad leaves to go golf and asserts to the kids, don't go in my office. As the mom is trying to clean, the dog continues to just bark and bark and bark outside the office door, aggravating her enough where she finally just opens the door and shuts the dog inside, very exasperated. The dog begins whining. Eventually, she goes to open it, but the door is locked from the outside, so the dog is stuck in there. Later, dad arrives home and mom is pissed, being like, you gotta do something about that dog. And when Alan goes to unlock the office to let the dog out, the dog isn't there. Back in the present, Tim is trying to tell Kaylee that she is remembering these events wrong. Mason didn't disappear inside the office. Mason is the dog. (laughs) Mason didn't disappear inside the office. He got sick. And we kind of see like a flashback to him remembering a conversation with the mom on the phone with Alan, right? So we can see Tim is remembering these events differently, but Kaylee insists, no, we sat on the outside of that door for hours. We saw nobody go in or out and Mason vanished. And she even says that Tim has been brainwashed. So this is where, if we haven't heard that kind of dialogue before, like we are hearing it now, or we're seeing that theme continue throughout this film. Back in the past, we can see that Marie and Alan are fighting again. Alan is telling Marie that she's losing her mind. And this arguing is so loud. The volume is reaching upstairs. It wakes the kids. Or at least I think Kaylee peeks downstairs and sees her parents. And Marie comes upstairs and tucks Kaylee back in. Kaylee asks if her parents are fighting because of the woman in the office. And we can see that that question further wounds Marie's sense of self or feeds into her growing insecurities about her marriage. And this, as Tim explains it, no, our dad had an affair and it drove mom crazy. And we see a replay of the scene we saw Kaylee see earlier through the open window while they were playing laser tag. And this time it's of Kate Siegel and Alan kissing and embracing. And Kate Siegel is very much a human being. Again, Tim is trying to convince her, like, this is what you believed, but this is what actually happened. Kaylee's like, our dad was seduced, but not by a person. Meanwhile, as they're arguing, the dog that has been put in front of the mirror is whining and barking, becoming increasingly more agitated. Finally, Tim can't stand the dog whining, and at Kaylee's behest, he takes the dog and frees it outside, which, great, the dog lives, presumably. hopefully. The dog makes it out. We don't (laughs) see the dog again, so we're hoping the dog just ran off to a better life. Tim tries to say, listen, our trauma isn't our fault. It runs in our family, which you could tell hurts Kaylee because it forces her to have to admit that their mother was mentally ill. Tim tries to convince her as she's in this vulnerable moment, like, listen, like, let's just go. We can go anywhere. We don't have to be here. And she seems to soften to this idea in this vulnerable state until she goes back to the office and says, there it is. As Tim joins her in the office doorway, they observe that the cameras that had been pointed toward the mirror are now pointed right at each other, like each lens of the camera face to face. They also notice that the plants in the house are dead. And when Kaylee goes back to replay the footage from the wall cameras, they see that during their previous argument, they had been, unbeknownst to themselves, subconsciously moving the video cameras towards one another, which is showing that they were unaware of their movements. Kaylee even asks Tim, do you remember doing that? I don't remember doing that. And just then an alarm goes off that the temperature has raised another two degrees in the room. The room is now getting warmer, which is something she was prepared for. Tim is starting to panic and wants to call his doctor, but Kaylee's like, if you want to make a call, you have to do it outside of its radius of influence because there are some plants that are alive and some plants that are dead, which is kind of showing that the mirror's influence is like 
like what 30 feet something like something that like, that. like there's some in the far corners that are alive the ones upstairs are alive but the ones like in the office and right outside the office are dead so it's growing so she's like okay we have to go like beyond its influence if you want to make a call you got to go outside so we see tim going outside and repeatedly trying to call his doctor the call isn't going through and he comes to back inside the house against the wall and he's like how do i get back inside and she's like you never left mm. so again we're messing with time we're messing with reality Meanwhile, Kaylee receives a call from Michael, but at 5.50, when she had asked him to call on the hour. So she's like, it's not him. We can't trust any communication we're getting inside this radius right now. Mm-hmm. So back in the past, the kids hear noises from the office. It's Marie standing in place with the vacuum, which I think is so eerie. So Marie is in front of the mirror, but the vacuum is behind her. So her right hand is reaching behind her body, holding the arm of the vacuum. And obviously it's uncomfortable because she is staring blankly into the mirror, but something about that positioning of her arm looks so unnatural. Oh, it's so unnerving. That night, dinner is a depression meal, burnt toast, cereal, and wine. Tim asks his mother why dad isn't home. And Marie says, I don't know where he is, but I know where he says he is and is going very hard on the wine. So Mm -hmm. mom is cracking a little bit and asks Kaylee, tell me more about the woman in the office. Kaylee says, I haven't seen her. But then Tim pipes up and says that he did last night, saying that she wasn't in the office. She was on the stairs. He didn't get a good look because he was scared, but he thinks that she went back into the office because he thinks that she lives there. Moms decides that she's going to go explore the office. She sits at Alan's desk and sees a woman's name, Marisol, with a heart next to it written on a piece of paper. And as she flips through his notebook, Marisol's name is written over and over on all of the pages. So she's obviously heartbroken, knocks things off the desk as she cries. As she collects herself, she's picking up the family broken portrait and gets so frustrated that she hurls something at the mirror but the object is deflected from its path and a wave of energy sends Marie back. And when she steadies herself, she is staring into the mirror, terrified to see her own reflection angrily staring back. Uh Oh, I thought the scene was going to be so much worse. I also felt that way. I was so pleasantly surprised. (sighs) (laughs) It edges you a little bit. So her reflection starts unbuttoning her nightgown showing in the mirror the cesarean scar open and Uh pussy. The mirror's reflection's eyes turn white, just like the ghostly woman's. Upstairs, you see the kid's perspective as they hear Marie screaming. They run downstairs to see what's up, and when they call to her, she is standing right in front of the mirror, not responding. As Tim goes to try to like pull her away, she turns very calmly and starts strangling baby Tim. Kaylee fights her off. They run upstairs. They lock themselves in their room as the mother is trying so hard to get through the door until dad comes home. She turns again, looking very off. Her head is bleeding from their previous altercation and they scuffle. And Alan is able to restrain her until she stops struggling. Kaylee sticks her head out to see what has happened. And Alan is sitting there on the floor with a passed out Marie telling Kaylee to go back inside the room. We can see Alan pull out his cell phone and dial 911, but we can hear only like vague whispers from the mirror coming through his cell phone, right? So he cannot get a call outside. So he ends up pushing Marie off of him, dragging her away down the hallway, and Kaylee opens the door again to see her father walking into the master bedroom with chains in his hand. 
In the past, we see Alan talking to the kids, saying that their mother needs to rest and that they can't bother her. Don't go into the room. He's like, you're welcome to play video games or even hang out in my office. When previously, they've been told explicitly not to do that. And I will say too, at this point, Alan seems to be less affected by the mirror's presence than Marie, which first we saw Alan seemingly to be the first one affected with the woman in his office. There's a line at some point about how Marie never left the house. It seems like she was a stay-at-home mom. So at some point, while Alan was going to his golf meetings with his clients or going here and there for his job, which wasn't all work from home, even though it was mostly, who was being affected most shifted, which I think is interesting. It's funny because I'm also going to talk about language about how Alan was seduced where Marie was possessed. Mm. And I think those might have something to do about how they're acting in regards to the mirror's influence as well. Like Alan's a willing participant where Marie is forced. But we also see Kaylee watching Alan carry food upstairs for their mom and asking, are you taking that to mom? And stoic, no answer. Meanwhile, in the present, another alarm goes off. Kaylee urges them to eat, places an apple in his hand. This is the most iconic scene of the movie. <laughs> so Tim is trying to also change light bulbs of the lamps in the living room. Then Tim disappears as one of the lights burns out, as Kaylee's kind of having this flashback about her father and taking the food. So Kaylee goes up to where the light bulbs are, starts changing the light bulbs, but these bulbs are burning out immediately, which I think is suggesting the amount of power that the mirror is pulling from its surroundings. She goes to take a bite out of her apple, but she bit into a light bulb and her mouth is bleeding. Mm. There's a very painful scene as she's whimpering and removing a very large (sighs) shard of glass from her gums. She's very wrapped up in this experience and Tim calls for her, which kind of wakes her up and he sees her wincing and staring at him in shock, but she actually did bite into the apple. I feel like a lot of times in movies that have those psychological thriller elements, it's like A to B association. You see a character think they're doing something, but it turns out they're really doing something different. But in this case, it's like a full circle. Sometimes you see characters think they're doing something, realize they're doing something else, only to then realize that they are actually doing the original thing they thought they were doing, which I feel like that extra step, bringing it back home, is even more disorienting because we can't even rely on the inverse of what we think is happening because that might not be true. They might be right all along about what they're seeing. And that I think is key for what ends up happening later. And because so much of this movie is what Kaylee believes to be the truth versus what Tim believes to be the truth, even if she bit into an apple, she's convinced herself it's a light bulb, right? So I Mm -hmm. think that us seeing both of their perspectives of like, oh my God, Kaylee seems delusional. Kaylee seems off her rocker, whatever. And then we have Kaylee who very much is feeling horrified and very much feeling like she's unsafe. I think it's just so brilliantly done showing how trauma can inform how you rewrite your memories and and how you wire those experiences and how visceral they can be to just like your body remembering them, right? Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's so, I love Mike Flanagan. <laughs> so in the past, Tim is watching cartoons and the screen goes to static. He hears some thudding upstairs suggesting that there's stuff going on with mom that we don't know about. Tim goes to Kaylee and says that he's hungry, but there's no food in the fridge. I love the fridge scene. There's like one beer, two pickles in a pickle jar, and like a vague substance in a Tupperware container. And like half a gallon of milk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
So Kaylee goes into the office being the older sister that she is being like, hey, we need food. The cable is shut off. We need a doctor for mom. And every single time Alan is just staring very dreamlike at the mirror being like, it's on my list. It's on my list. It's on my list. So Kaylee's like, fuck this. I'm going to go tell mom because you're not doing what you need to be doing. So Kaylee ventures upstairs to talk to her mother. But as she opens the door, she sees clothes all over the room, a very messy bed, and a broken plate visible at the edge of the bed. So as she walks further, I love the way that this is shot because from the perspective of beyond the bed, you see blood spattered on the very light comforter. So you know something's up. And there is a Marie jump scare Her mouth is bloody. She is chained to the wall by her neck. And you could tell she's been eating the plate. Mm -hmm. She's been munching on that plate. And she is lacking all of her teeth. All of her complete teeth. There's a lot of portions. That's a thing too, yes. Her teeth are also shattered. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not those exposed nerves. No, no, no. So Kaylee runs away and is yelling at the dad, being like, what's happening up there? What the fuck are you doing? She doesn't say that. I'm saying that. But dad yells back and is like, you don't listen, so you and your snot-nosed brother are grounded, but like in a very menacing, I'm going to kill you kind of way. And then I love this scene because I really like that they're showing these kids being resourceful. Mm -hmm. Kaylee is calling every single doctor in the Yellow Pages. And every single person is saying, have your father call. She hangs up and is reporting to Tim. They said to have dad call. And Tim is like, exactly like the last one. And Kaylee says, the same voice. So again, Mirror is influencing all communications. And then we even see Kaylee venturing outside to try to get help from a neighbor. But the dad is able to convince him otherwise, being like, Marie is just sick. Kaylee's not coping well right now. I'm so sorry that she bothered you. But I love the shot of Alan leaning up against the wall. And the wall is bloody from him continuing to bite at his fingers. And he's just standing there as if it's like some lackadaisical pose. But blood on the wall is pooling. And Mm. the kids are just watching from that banister being like, this isn't right. Mm -mm. So back in the present, adult Kaylee is leaning against the mirror with her eyes closed. But all of a sudden realizes that the kill switch timer is about to go off. So she runs to reset it and then yells to Tim as another timer goes off. But she throws it on the ground, which I was kind of confused about. Why did she throw this timer on the ground? Is she starting to distrust the timer system that she set up? Well, also, like, she came to against the mirror. She did not actively choose to be against the mirror. Like, she was pulled to be against the mirror. Mm -hmm. So part of me is thinking that even though she tried to make this as structured as possible, she's not trusting the timers at this point. Nothing's objective at this point. But she has lost Tim. They're not eating anymore because she just bit into a light bulb. Didn't actually, but... But this is when our timelines start to merge. Mm -hmm. Because she has lost him, but he is upstairs looking at his younger self Mm -hmm. in his old bedroom. And young Tim looks up at old Tim and seems to perceive him. Suddenly the lights go out in both timelines and older Tim disappears. Young Tim walks down the stairs and yells for Kaylee. And we see older Kaylee seemingly answering the call, walking upstairs with the lamp past young Tim, which is like, okay, things are getting extra complicated. And Mike Flanagan is really, 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 really good at doing this kind of shit. He does it in Hill House really well. He does it in Blind Manor really well, where there's multiple timelines, there's multiple ages, and he makes them interact. And it's so fun to see. So back to the present, Kaylee is frustrated. She lights all of these lanterns because no lights in the house are working at this point. She's kicking dead plants out of the way. The radius is showing to be expanding because now all the plants are dead. 
she's upstairs in what was once her parents' room and sees the broken plate that her mother was eating. And she's like, this isn't real. This isn't real. Meanwhile, past Tim is walking around the dark house, walking to the office, asking his father to fix the lights. But when he opens the office door, he sees demon Kate Siegel snarling at him with the bright eyes. So this is when I realized it was Kate Siegel. Oh, right here. Yes. And what should have been a very scary moment was actually very fun for me. (laughs) She's so pretty. Um, He runs away, locks himself in his room as present Tim is watching it happen. So I really like too that like Tim is watching it happening and this is him remembering what is actually happening. Yes. He's watching it, but it's also him remembering. It's so good. So present Kaylee is examining the piece of broken plate on the ground and smartly takes her iPhone to like look around the floor looking at all the broken plate and through the viewfinder of the iPhone, it's not there. So it's the house playing tricks on her and she seems to call that out. But behind her, there is a demon Marie jump scare and she uses the piece of broken plate that she's picked up to stab that person in the neck. But that person ends up being Michael. Not Michael. So Tim runs down after hearing Kaylee scream, and she's like, do you see him? Do you see him? And we can see Tim leaning down to embrace Michael, like checking on him, trying to make sure he has a pulse. Just then, Kaylee gets a phone call, and it is Michael. And she answers the phone. It's Michael's voice, just checking in, seeing how everything's going. And Kaylee ends the call saying, oh, I couldn't have killed him because the plate I'm holding, like, it's not real. But then she realizes the plate that she's holding is a piece of the broken pot that she kicked Mm. and not the plate from the past. And she looks at Michael through her iPhone and realizes that she killed her fiance. This was a very tough moment. Yeah. Because Michael, he was a great guy by all accounts. And he had a really nice 90s hairdo. Lots of hair on top of his head. He was giving Clark Kent. Yes. And again, I think really underscoring the loss of reality or the difficulty in determining what is real and what is not real. Even Kaylee, who has proven herself to be very resourceful through the years, is really struggling with all of these, I want to say bumpers almost, that she has put in place to keep her task in line and she is still losing touch. So Tim takes Kaylee outside to call 911, but that doesn't work. Kaylee tries to run back inside the house, but Tim stops her saying, look, we just have to stay out here and wait for the kill switch to go off, right? Because she has that kind of last resort event in place. But then suddenly all the lights go on back inside the house, but they can see themselves as adults, like mirror images of themselves in the office, standing stoic in front of the mirror. Immediately, I was like, okay, so that's saying if the kill switch goes off, they're going to be collateral, right? Well, yeah, they're discussing, like, is this a trick to get them inside or Mm -hmm. is this a trick to keep them standing there in front of the mirror? Yes. They don't know what's real at this point. Yeah, something is bad. He calls 911 again, but they get the response from the past with that voice saying, you're going to have to have your father call, which I got chills just thinking about it is so tastefully done. Kaylee breaks the phone on the ground and asks Tim what they should do. I know that there's that Reese Witherspoon quote. She's in an interview talking about how in all the script reading she's done over the years, she's used to the line where a woman asks a man what to do. So I always think about that. And I was thinking about that here. But in this moment, it feels so impactful because Kaylee has been the one the whole time to be the mastermind behind this attempt to regain I don't know, their sense of selves over what they've had to endure since their parents' death. And I feel like it is such a terrifying moment when we see Kaylee like beaten down so much that she turns to her brother and is like, what should we do? Like she is officially out of tricks. 
Especially because in real time too, in the time of this movie, we're seeing baby Kaylee protecting baby Tim so much Mm -hmm. throughout the entirety of the movie being like, you stand here, I'm going to rush ahead, I need you to run, like all that kind of stuff. And that's going to come a little bit later. But she has been this guardian angel over him, over the memory and over trying to justify his identity and like justify his reputation. Mm -hmm. And finally, she's like, what do you want us to do? Yeah. And it is very sweet. So they do re-enter the house. So the lights flicker off and demon Kate Siegel is back. She approaches them with their father's voice saying, I thought I told you not to play around in here. And as she approaches them, they and their kid selves both run away. So again, this merging of the timeline. Meanwhile, in the flashback, dad is loading his gun. Kaylee is standing with Tim holding a golf club, telling him they're going to need to smash it. In the next room, Mom is eating a potted plant as Dad enters the room holding the gun. He crouches to face her, just out of her reach, and holds the gun to her chin very menacingly. And you think he's going to shoot her, but then he releases her from her chain and she stands. We find adult Tim and Kaylee locking themselves in the bathroom with Kaylee whimpering, is she gone? Which is the reaction that she would have had seeing Kate Siegel in the past. So again, a lot of merging happening here. It's a little confusing, but visually it works really well. And also I think the adult characters now like resuming their real emotions that they felt when they were kids. Like they have started to act out this timeline in tandem with their own adult timeline. Tim is saying that the mirror is hurting them upstairs and they need to get downstairs before the anchor falls because he believes that they are standing in front of the mirror Mm. in real time. We see a transition of the kids hiding in the bathroom where Kaylee is turning to Tim saying, when I open the door, you run downstairs, you get out of here. She ends up having to whack her mother with a golf club as Tim runs downstairs, but their father is blocking the doorway. So he ends up having to hide in the kitchen and Kaylee fucking yeets herself out of a window Texas Chainsaw Massacre style. Yes, certainly. (laughs) But as she's circling the house, she realizes that Tim didn't make it out, so she makes her way back in. Oh, my God. And again, like, the in and out of the house, in and out, in and out, like, that motion has become such a part of this film. I also think that's really interesting. So meanwhile, Tim is alone inside the house waiting for Kaylee to return or not sure if Kaylee's even going to return at this point. And we see him watching Alan walk down the hall. Tim is trying to tell himself that this isn't real. But then we hear Alan fire the gun. Kaylee gets back inside. She walks into the room with the mirror and she sees her fiance's corpse standing in front of it with a smile on his face. But I kind of, I thought this was kind of funny. She doesn't really react. Mm -hmm. She just kind of walks away and continues looking for Tim. Meanwhile, past Kaylee is walking down the hall, similar to how we just saw adult Kaylee doing that. And Tim gestures to her, but she doesn't quite understand what he's trying to say. And we suddenly see Marie in her most ghastly state yet, lunging at Kaylee and knocking her to the ground where she begins to strangle her daughter. After a few moments, we see almost a look of some kind of regained control come back over Marie's face. She loosens her grip on Kaylee's neck, seeming to regain some sense of normalcy here. But then she is shot from behind by Alan with the gun. Not once, but twice. Kaylee grabs Tim and runs out of the room. Alan shoots his wife a third time. And we can see he is now standing surrounded by all of the corpses that have been previously taken by the mirror with their glowing white eyes. I mean, how spooky is this? Kaylee and Tim hide behind a door, trying to wait until their father is gone. 
They try to run, again, grabbing golf clubs. I love the returning of these golf clubs. Also like a pretty good weapon to have on hand, Mm -hmm. I think. They head into the office and try to break the mirror, but then of course find that they are just hitting the wall. The mirror is deflecting these blows. Alan then enters the room. He still has his gun and he points it at Kaylee, but then Tim comes from the side, hitting his dad's arm with the golf club, which knocks the gun out of his hands. Alan attacks Kaylee physically, manually, but then Tim picks up the gun and yells and threatens him. So then Alan loosens his grip, turns around, kneels in front of Tim. And as Tim is pointing the gun at his father, Alan reaches up, wraps his hand around Tim's little hand, holding the gun with his thumb on the trigger too, and nods as if to say, yes, The gun goes off and Alan is dead. And that causes the crack in the mirror. Yes. So a crowd of ghosts descend on baby Tim and baby Kaylee. (laughs) And Mike Flanagan has also done this in other works of his, and I think it's effective every single time. Ghost Kate Siegel opens her mouth and it's the alarm of the pendulum coming out of her mouth. They do this in Midnight Mass very well. I think they do it in Haunting of Hill House too. He's just very good at like when he's playing with this timeline, the ghost becomes the sound of the present. And it's, Mm. oh my God, he's so fucking smart. But present Tim wakes up in front of the mirror. Kaylee's nowhere to be found, but the pendulum alarm is going off. So he like runs, he resets it. Baby Kaylee is then waking up, holding the golf club covered in blood and sees her mother calling from her from the mirror, unharmed, looking healthy as ever. Present Tim is confused, looking around, not knowing where Kaylee is. As baby Kaylee in the past approaches the mirror, as her mother beckons her from beyond the frame, her arms are reaching outside of the frame. They embrace, they hug. Tim just is so wound up in vengeance, this is present Tim, that he pulls the kill switch with contempt, killing adult Kaylee, who is standing in front of the mirror, thinking that she's hugging her mother. Mm-hmm. So Tim, we could see through his perspective that he did not perceive Kaylee in the room, but she was there the whole time in front of the mirror. He sees her gurgling on her own blood as she stands impaled in front of the mirror. He is screaming at his sister. This is such a tough scene to watch. Then we see police lights approaching the house. Previously, we weren't sure if Tim got a 911 call out. It seems like he did because in the present, Tim is now arrested. We see a police officer ask a colleague, how did this come to be? And the police officer is like, he called it in himself and then did this. So they're puzzled by Tim calling the police and then committing this murder. It doesn't seem like it's making sense. And as Tim is being driven away, he sees the corpses of his entire family. Now, not just his parents, but his sister included, standing in the window of the house, watching him with their glowing white eyes. And that's the movie. Yeah, I mean, don't watch it if you want to feel good. <laughs> but no winners. No, no winners. But so fucking good. Yes. So some post-plot stuff. So this is Mike Flanagan on mirrors, and this comes from an article, Fear the Glass, the making of the best haunted mirror movie you'll ever see by Matt Barone. Flanagan chose to not explain the mirror's origins, explaining how he liked how Lovecraftian literature often seemed to be an alien force that even if you were to try to comprehend it, it completely would drive you mad. He expanded, evil in the world doesn't have an answer. 
So while he gave the mirror history, he never gave the powers history, which I also find to be interesting. Yeah, I didn't feel like that choice made the movie lack in any way. No. And especially because I feel like that extended history of the effects was so satisfying. Like, that's all you needed to know. Like, there was this pattern. Like, fuck everything else. He goes on to say, mirrors have always creeped me out. As a kid, I played Bloody Mary and all the games like that. And as I got older, I started thinking about them more. When you're thinking about horror, you always want to find something that's ubiquitous and universal, something that everyone has to deal with. We all begin our days with a relationship to our mirror, and our entire perception of who we are and what we look like is based on what we see in that, and we're wrong anyway. For one thing, it's backwards. All of our mental images of ourselves are completely wrong. And then the other thing is, every mirror has so many tiny flaws on its surface to where everything we think is projected as reality, and it isn't. It's all distorted, and we ignore that. We assume it's completely objective. I've always thought that was neat. Wow, I never thought about a mirror so much. Now I don't know what I look like, and I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) So I also thought this was very Mike Flanagan, and I'm a nerd, so I liked this. He likes adding little Easter eggs. He's a Taylor Swift mastermind. (laughs) Because the Laster Glass makes cameos in many other Flanagan works. What? So, just to name a few. In Haunting of Hill House, it's in episode one, somewhere in the house. Ouija Origin of Evil, it's in the basement. In Haunting of Blind Manor, it's in the attic of episode seven. Midnight Mass, it's on the stage during an AA meeting. In Gerald's Game, the Lasser Glasses frame mimics the shape of the bed frame, which is like the setting of the movie. In The Midnight Club, it's in the basement. In Doctor Sleep, it's on the wall of the Overlook Hotel. And most recently, in The Fall of the House of Usher, it's in episode one, very prominently behind the two people sitting at the bar making that deal with the bartender. (gasps) Oh my God. It's in the background of the old-timey bar. It's just sitting right there. That's the one that's like the most out there that Uh I noticed. It's present in all post-Oculus Flanagan works, except Hush and Before I Wake, for some reason. I don't exactly know why. Okay, huh. But it makes an appearance everywhere else. And that's from a Slash Film article by Hannah Shaw Williams. So I just love that Flanagan's a nerd and likes planting his little Easter eggs around. It's fun. That makes it fun. So then I just had some general themes or general discussion questions to bring up. One theme being rewriting memories to heal from trauma. I brought this up earlier. So I surmised, it's clear that Kaylee has dedicated much of her adult life to pouring over research that could displace blame away from her father and towards this mystic mirror. While in horror, we've seen many instances of male characters trying to dissuade the women around them from supernatural explanations, I appreciate that Tim's rationalizations were rooted in compassionate, trauma-informed spaces that explained Kaylee's behavior without dismissing her for the most part. I think definitely as it gets toward the end, he's like, you're delusional. I can't break your delusion, la la la. But a lot of the time, he's being very gentle, being like, something really bad happened to both of us. And it's easier for us to blame this mirror than it is to really accept the fact that our parents weren't happy and our dad had an affair and that he did a really bad thing. And I understand you're doing the best that you can right now. He's like parenting her and he's comforting her. And while we know the truth and while Kaylee knows the truth, it's not coming from, uh, you're crazy. Like yeah. most of the time. He gets a point where he gets frustrated and it leans a little bit into that. But I appreciate that it's not like the insidious where Roseburn is like made out to be like a nutcase most yes. of the time or something like that. Or even the conjuring, right? Like it's very supportive and he's really trying to comfort his older sister and repay that care. 
I'm also curious as well about, Tim is very emotionally literate. He has spent the last 11 years getting to know himself, being in an extensive therapy program, doing his best to put language to something that he experienced a long time ago. And it's interesting seeing in what would be a normal conversation, a very self-aware Tim navigating a challenging situation very well. But in this case, we're seeing Tim use that dialogue that he's learned or come to accept to kind of explain away a situation that he actually doesn't know and that he's hiding from. Right. So I think it's kind of interesting, again, like seeing that brother-sister dynamic, like he is very tender with Kaylee. It does feed into the relationship we get to see them have in the film but also using it to hide as well. It's like a complex way, I think, that Tim's rationale is functioning in the movie. And it's really interesting because the movie we're about to cover, the episode that comes out next week, there's a very similar Mm -hmm. sibling dynamic of one person really making a very traumatic event, their identity with another person really trying their best to distance themselves from it and move on. So it is really realistic in that way. So I was just curious, like, who is Marie possessed by? Is it a specific entity in the mirror or is it like just the influence of the mirror itself? Because in the past, we see Alan seduced by the mirror to do its bidding while Marie is very actively possessed. And while this isn't the first time we've seen men enacting violence on behalf of a malevolent force, I'm thinking of Ryan Reynolds in The Amityville Horror. It's far more often that women are being possessed to harm their own families. Yeah. The Conjuring, Babadook, Talk to Me, Sinister, Exorcist, Evil Dead, like so many, right? So it's made clear that while the mirror is influencing Alan, it's possessing Marie. So who is inside her? Could her violence towards her children have something to do with Marisol dying from a miscarriage? I think you're onto something. Because Marisol, we see her as like the prominent ghost. We do see other ghosts toward the end of the movie in the climax, but Marisol is the main one, right? Kate Siegel. So being that she was the last person to die before the mirror came into this family's possession, is the violence toward the kids specifically having to do with Marisol's own feelings toward like not being able to have her own child? Like, what do you think? I don't know. I think that that makes a lot of sense because I think Marisol is the only one in the extensive history to die from a miscarriage. So I think it makes sense that there's some kind of correlation here. Like maybe that's part of the way the mirror works. The last person to die becomes the primary aggressor in the next quote unquote haunting or possession. I do think that in general, Marie's possession plays into a lot of stereotypical ideas regarding how a woman becomes possessed in these kinds of films. Obviously, the list you just gave is supporting that. There are so many examples of that that we've seen in horror and especially on this podcast. And also even the way Alan is seduced, I think feeds a lot into the way men become impacted by these supernatural entities, almost as if this entity is meant to bring out some kind of quote unquote natural aggression in the male figure. And then also this natural insecurity in the woman Mm. figure that she then antagonizes her children or laments over her changed figure or her cesarean section scar, right? Like it does kind of feel like in a way this movie plays into those stereotypical ideas of possession that we've talked about before. But I think something that saves this is Marisol and her death and wondering if there's that correlation there. Mm -hmm. Because if Marisol is in the house and we're assuming she is impacting Alan, then I think it's safe to assume she's also impacting Marie. Yeah. And it would make sense that Marie would experience what she felt if Marisol was the primary aggressor there. And often 
I think men contribute to women's insecurity, but I tend to believe that most of the time insecurity comes from comparison and that's usually woman to woman. That is such a good point. Yeah, woman to woman a lot of times. Because you don't, I mean, it's unusual that you would see a woman comparing herself to a man, unless maybe we're talking about some kind of like sibling situation, Mm -hmm. which is actually part of this movie. Right. But yes, we see Marie comparing herself to this young, gorgeous, dark-haired Marisol, which is obviously different from Marie in age, but also in appearance. Is she insecure about the differences that they have in their appearance? But I find it interesting that we never see Marie perceiving Marisol. That is a really good point. So like what's in her head? Maybe she doesn't even have to because she knows how this kind of thing is going to affect Marie. Because so much of the time I feel like jealousy or comparison happens when there's little information, but a lot of overthinking about it. Because then you're writing stories Mm -hmm. and then you're, and then you're insecure and then you lose touch with reality because sometimes you end up so far in this alternate universe that you're crafting out of a place of insecurity or anxiety that like, it doesn't even matter if somebody's haunting you or not, you're haunting yourself. I mean, I think that lends to the fact that Marisol is inside of Marie if we never see them like interacting with each other. Yes. Is she inside Marie? Eating plates and just... Eating plates because Marisol was the one that took out all of her teeth, Mm -hmm. which we also saw similarities with in Marie's death. And I don't remember, because I know that the mirror has a pretty even history of... Men to women. Yeah, Yeah. men to women. But I feel like the other women we heard about being killed by the mirror, like one of them like dehydrated in a bathtub after sitting there for three days, which is so different from this whole like plate eating, teeth pulling, chain... Wearing. Wearing (laughs) idea. And you're right. Like there is that similarity there in in the ways that those two women died. Ooh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. We're doing something. (laughs) So this one's like the most complicated. And I don't even know that I know where I was going with this. But I want to know what Kaylee's motivations actually are. I wrote like, while Kaylee seems to be doing the most to seek revenge on an undetermined paranormal force to the point of borderline unbelievability, Tim's observations and Kaylee's stated motivations conflict. Is she doing this to preserve the image of her family she had prior to its disillusion, as Tim suggests, being that like before there was an affair, before there was murder, before there was all these things? Or is she trying to rewrite the narrative that follows her family like she suggests? Like, I want to clear my dad's name. I want to clear your name. While it could be both, Kaylee's motivations are never expanded beyond her own family. She wants to kill it, but not for the sake of other safety. Like, not, I don't want this mirror to do anything to anybody else. It's, I want to have revenge for what you did to me. Wow, that's a really good point. She is so caught up in her own narrative about what it did to her personally. Mm-hmm. Girl, you're like 12 years beyond this. Like, you're out of the foster system. You have a career. You have a fiance. Tim is not institutionalized anymore. The effects of this can only lessen from here. And the mirror is nowhere around you. But she is doing the most be like, no, I need that mirror back in my space. I need to prove that it did this thing to my family. And I need to do all of these tricks and cameras and all of these types of things to prove that I was correct. When why couldn't you just let it go like Tim has? I wonder if that's a choice to diminish her ethos as a character, kind of further that line between reality and Mm non-reality. Because I feel like if she had those noble intentions, 
I want to save other people from this trauma, it would almost make her too believable. Yeah. So believable that that line between which sibling is right or is this movie really more of a metaphor for enduring familial trauma? I think those two ideas might be too far apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're right. We would root for Kaylee too much if she was like, we need to vanquish it. It's our responsibility. Like, you know what it is. Like, all these types of things. But she's like, no, I want to prove that you didn't do what you did. She keeps it really centralized. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the exception of, like, the research she does, her motivations are really centralized. But then I even love Tim's line earlier where it's like, how many files did you need to pour over to find 12 or 13 that fit (laughs) what you thought it was going to be? Versus, like, how many years has it been alive? 17, whatever, and you only found, like, 20 cases? So obviously it did things where it didn't kill people. So again, that is showing, a good point. Showing her flawedness. Like what happened in the interim? Where was it yes. in the interim? Like, was it not killing people? Yes. Because I mean, Marisol died in 1975. And yeah. then the mirror ended up in her family's house in 2002. Where was it in those exactly. 30 years? Is it in a warehouse? What happened to the warehouse workers? Where's was, the plants? Where's the plant? <laughs> right. That's a really good point. Like there are those holes in her research process in, again, the hundreds of years that this mirror has been around, where was it in the times where she didn't identify? And again, I think it's impressive that she was able to find such an extensive history about this mirror. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're totally right. Thinking about that question is making me feel less confident about Kaylee's side. I think I've always had a history of being a very literal reader. And I think I read this movie very literally in the sense that I'm seeing a mirror that is having a negative effect on the people that possess it and in turn possessing those people. And so I believed Kaylee every step of the way. But now that I'm taking a step back, I'm wondering like, okay, maybe this isn't meant to be as literal as it seems. Maybe this has some metaphorical meaning. Maybe Tim was right to a certain extent, or the reality of how these elements are working together isn't as clear cut as I thought it was when I first watched it. The truth of the matter was never going to be able to be the truth of the matter outside of that house. Yes. No one knows the truth except those two, but their truth is only what they're convincing itself that it is. So maybe Tim killed Kaylee. Maybe Tim just killed his father. And they're traumatized. And I think like having siblings be the relationship pair that navigate this is really unique too. And again, like Michael is kind of there for a second until he's removed from the equation. Poor Michael, RIP. But siblings who literally share a genetic bond closer than even you to your parents, you share such a close genetic bond with your siblings and they're the ones that are navigating this together. It's like, are they influencing the other as far as the story that they believe? And it's so believable in that way that siblings could have such a profound effect on one another when they are working together to try to navigate a situation. And again, the movie that we're covering next week really does show the impact of how something that happened so long ago can be Mm. so easily triggered and like unravel everything that you've told yourself was the truth up until a certain point. So I love that we're playing with this and we (laughs) didn't do this intentionally, but the two movies I think pair so well together. I also think it plays into some of the themes we talked about with Malignant. Mm-hmm. Old traumas being unearthed suddenly and viciously. Yeah. Is this... Uh, this is reminding me of the spring when we kind of settled into an unintentional gothic trend. Yeah, and now, yeah. oh, familial trauma. Ooh, okay. Right before the holidays. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How serendipitous. Wow. Okay, well, that's it. That's Oculus. I had so much fun. This is so good. Please watch it. It's for free on YouTube right now. Yes, watch it. Absolutely. It's definitely worth it.
And if you want to keep in touch with us and what we are up to, as always, please follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast and or feel free to email us at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.